Check one, two. Check sound. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the April 2016 Harvard Medical Labcast. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications in Boston. I'm Stephanie Duchin. And I'm Jake Miller. In this episode, Jake tells us about how understanding the context of an outbreak like Ebola, including personal, political, historical, and environmental factors, in addition to the biomedical factors, is crucial to preventing future outbreaks. And in today's conversation, Stephanie speaks with HMS Associate Professor of Medicine Joseph Betancourt, who directs the Disparity Solution Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. His work here at MGH and with other U.S.-based organizations mirrors a lot of what we saw in the Ebola outbreak, the importance of looking at people as individuals and members of a particular community for finding the best way to provide health care for them. Exactly right. He talked about growing up in a bilingual and bicultural household and the challenges that presented for him and his family when they went to the doctor's office. And we also talked about what he has struggled with on the other side of the equation as a doctor caring for patients who come from many different cultures and often speak different languages. But he also shared some of the improvements that he has seen in the last 10 years in boosting cultural competence and reducing healthcare disparities and shared tips that doctors and patients can follow to raise the quality of care. I had the chance to hear him speak a few weeks ago, and I know that he's really passionate about this work and has thought a lot about it, and I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Joe, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you are the director of the Disparities Solution Center here at Mass General. What do you do here? So uh, the Disparities Solution Center was created in uh, 2005. The basic uh, genesis of the center really grew out of a lot of research, uh, work that I'd done, but a lot of work that had been done nationally that really put on the healthcare map the issue that if two patients uh, presented to the emergency room, all things about them being equal except for the color of their skin, Mm -hmm. uh, and they both presented with chest pain, Uh, one patient might be less likely to be referred for cardiac catheterization, angioplasty, bypass surgery, or cardiology specialist care. If you have two patients, again, all things being equal about them, including insurance, socioeconomic status, and the like, Mm -hmm. uh, except for the color of their skin, and they both present to an emergency room with a broken arm or a broken leg, uh, minority patients significantly less likely to get the same amount of pain medication for the same exact fractures or white counterpart. This is an area... Uh, in healthcare that we call racial and ethnic disparities in, in healthcare. These are differences in the quality of care that patients receive when you particularly look at this issue of race and ethnicity. Now, there are disparities in other areas if you stratify by socioeconomic status, insurance status, you know, gender and the like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the research on racial and ethnic disparities has been particularly, uh, I think, poignant. Um, uh, it's been massive, and uh, my sense was in the early 2000s that there was a lot of research being done in this area, mm-hmm. but a lot less uh, action and a lot less focus on doing something to better identify and address these problems. Talking about it, studying it, but maybe not putting it into practice. Exactly, and so the center really tries to fill this gap. We were developed and created with the explicit purpose of working with operating healthcare systems, end users, people who are delivering care, systems that are designed to deliver care, Mm -hmm. health plans, hospitals, health centers, to get them to number one, be aware of this issue and to put it in the context of all the other things that they're doing. 
Um, number two, to build the tools and skills they need to identify how disparities are impacting their care and where it's happening, with a particular focus on its link to cost, quality, safety. I mean, we want to really make this something real for healthcare leaders. They deal with a lot of things. We want to really link it to these issues that they need to be responsive to. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, giving them some tools and skills to do something about it. That is our main goal. And so the center really does this in a variety of ways. But, you know, we want to create a national movement, create momentum that's built on tools, skills, and action. Now, you became interested in this, I understand, at a pretty young age because of experiences that you had with family members interacting with the healthcare system. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so I'm originally from Puerto Rico, grew up in a bilingual bicultural home, uh, had the, the good pleasure of, um, you know, growing up really in, in two cultures uh, and being able to speak Spanish, certainly, but also seeing the perspective of some of my family members on how they viewed health and healthcare. Um, how they brought their own health beliefs, values, and perspectives to the table, how those are often at odds with, uh, you know, what doctors would say or share with them. Getting a chance to, to, you know, go with my grandparents to the doctor to serve as their interpreter, to really see that, that some of the challenges that people were facing were common to all people, but just to varying degrees. But there was no doubt that if you throw into the mix different cultural perspectives, language barriers, and the like, that these challenges, I think, impact certain populations more than others, and we see that in the literature. So, you know, this work comes from a very personal place. It's it's from my own uh, personal experiences with my family, serving as an interpreter for my grandmother, seeing some of the challenges she faced despite having caregivers who cared deeply for her, you know, seeing this again in, in medical school play out. Um, you know, I, I think I decided that I wanted to just simply figure out how we could create a healthcare system that could better meet the needs of all patients, not just a select few. And I think that's an aspirational universal message that people could rally behind, and I think that's what we found. Uh, but there's no doubt that people feel like, and I personally feel like, the more passion you bring to this, the more effective you are. And uh, people see that, and I think they see it's not, this isn't for me an academic pursuit, this is about people's lives. Can you tell me the story about what happened when you went with your grandmother to the doctor one day? Yeah, you know, and this story is something that, uh, you know, I think we've all seen as, as caregivers where, you know, you, you, you show up, uh, showing up with, with uh, a family member and ask as a child to assist in that process. And oftentimes, like in the case of my grandmother, the family member really liking the doctor so much and viewing the doctor as an authority figure that even if she didn't understand um, or even if she had questions, she didn't want to ask uh, because she didn't want to disappoint the doctor or she didn't mm. feel like that was her place. And so a lot of times we see these visits, and my visits were no different, where, you know, no matter what the doctor asks, uh, the patient, my grandmother will say, yes, doctor, yes, si, doctor, si, doctor, si, doctor. And at the end of the day, they leave the visit and say, well, I'm not really sure what they said, and I'm not going to do it anyway. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, it's, it's not because the, it's not about liking or not liking the doctor in fact, it's quite the opposite. My, my grandmother really liked a lot of her doctors. We see patients who really love their doctors, who rate them very high on patient experience. But their cultural view is that, you know, I have to, you know, behave well in the visit. I need to do what's told to me, and I need to, you know, this isn't about me asking questions. And, you know, I like them so much I don't want to disappoint them. So the yes doctor phenomenon is something that's universal. I experience it. Other people experience it all the time. And uh, I think we could do better, you know. Have you then experienced... A situation like that from the other side where you've been I don't know either a patient or a healthcare provider and you've had to deal with these sort of cultural communication barriers yeah all the time I mean I really care deeply about cross-cultural issues in healthcare 
uh, and I try to employ these skills all the time. I'm a practicing internist. I spend around 30% of my time practicing primary care internal medicine. But, you know, here we see an incredibly diverse population. I have a, you know, a lot of patients who are from Haiti, from Cape Verde, from Italy, from, from Portugal, from Brazil. So my Spanish helps me for about 60, 70% of my patients, but mm-hmm. there's another big group for whom cultural barriers, uh, Irish patients, for whom cultural barriers, perspectives, in some cases language, plays out in front of me. And so, you know, I need to be attentive to making sure I bring in an interpreter, that I guide the visit, that I really create a safe space to say, hey, it's okay if you ask me questions. You know, I say, I've given you a lot of information let me know what. Let me know if you have questions right now, mm-hmm. and tell me what they are. So, really, to try to encourage the dynamic to not be, do you have any questions? Yes or no. But hey, I expect questions, and they're helpful, and that's good. So, these are all tools and skills that we learn that could help us be more effective, and that they're pra- practical and actionable. These aren't about making the visit two hours long, which we just can't do. This is about having a set of tools and skills that allows you to do better. I deal with that all the time, and I'll say that there are situations certainly where. Patients want family members as interpreters because they don't want somebody else coming in. And those are challenging because you know that an interpreter is a lot more effective and trained and the like. In an effort to respect the family's uh, wishes, I'll sometimes use family members, never use children, Mm because I I tell them that's not possible. But if I use a family member, I make sure that we cover certain things and only certain things that if I'm, you know, if I'm going to go into sensitive areas, I I require an interpreter. And that I'm going to guide that family member that, hey, it's not just about you know editorializing. Like if they give a long answer, don't just say they said it's fine. Really give me everything they said. You got to give people some guidelines. Yeah. And so those are ways that I manage these things in my clinical practice. So are those the kinds of things too that doctors should be aware of in their daily practice? Like how can they better serve their patient populations as demographics around the country are changing? Yeah, I mean this is the whole evolution of this field called cultural competence, which really focuses on how do we make sure that our caregivers could care for, at a high level, anyone from anywhere at any time. And I mean, I think that's quintessential to being a, a care provider. Now, you know, a lot of what's been done in this area has done two things which I think have been faulty. One is try to teach what we call a menu-based approach to culture, which is to try to teach you this is how you need to care for the Latino patient, the African-American patient. And I think in many ways that leads to more stereotypes. There is no menu or you know guidebook on how to care for populations. Every individual is an individual. So that's a key lesson we want to teach people. Mm-hmm. But the other one is a lot of people feel like education in this area is, you know, you're it's it's you're trying to fix me because I'm broken. There's this assumption that we're we're trying to fix you or that, you know, this is political correctness and the like. And at the end of the day what we really try to teach people is their gaps, there are disparities. What can we do to up our game? We want to teach you some key tools and skills that can be accomplished in a 15-minute visit Mm -hmm. that are going to add value to the encounter, that are going to help you with some of your more frustrating cases where you feel like you could be doing something to help the patient, but you just can't quite get that sense of cooperation. Um, That's what we're trying to teach. And so we are making progress, but it needs to be done in that spirit. Aspirational, key tools and skills, focus on performance value and high-quality care. And and I think that's where we're trying to drive this field. And you teach at the medical school as well, right? Yeah, we teach um, here at Mass General, do a lot of work at the medical school, and do a lot of work uh, nationally, primarily through e-learning, where we're able to kind of, as opposed to being on the road all the time, I'm able to kind of use case-based teaching in an e-learning fashion and do a lot at scale, train a lot of people Mm -hmm. with a standardized dose of education in a short amount of time across the country. And so that's been very effective. In some of our work, we've trained, you know, over 140,000 healthcare professionals across the country. Pretty Uh, good reach. Yeah, we think it's important and really creating a learning pathway for these people. So, you know, we certainly don't anticipate that one course does, 
behavior change make. <laughs> we really believe that it's, it is about giving people a set of tools and skills that they could use, that they could learn over time. Um, and I'm an incrementalist. I believe that, you know, if I could share one, two, or three tools with the provider, and they could do three things better tomorrow, that's success. And is there anything that patients can do to improve the way that they and their doctors work together? Yes, certainly. I, I think that particularly for the populations that we work with, you know, a couple of key things that we want to share. Number one, you know, take the time to hunt for a healthcare provider and a system that really meets your needs. I, I think the last thing patients should be doing is settling for a caregiver who doesn't really meet their needs or they don't feel really uh, provides good care to them or they mm -hmm. don't trust. So that's mm -hmm. first. Um, the second is, as a, as a patient, you know, being prepared, um, knowing a little bit about your symptoms when you present with a complaint, knowing what your medications are, um, you know, having that history at your fingertips is just going to be helpful. Um, number three, not being afraid to ask questions. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, the care encounter should be interactive. And so, you know, being prepared with one, two, or three questions, making sure you leave the caregiver's office with a good understanding of what you need to do. Yeah. I, and I think if you hear these, you'll, you'd imagine and you could say, well, these are important for all patients. The answer is yes. But the truth of the matter is for vulnerable populations where mistrust is an issue, where there is this reluctance to ask questions, where you know, th there is a, a sense that, well, that's just my doctor and I just gotta work it out or I just, that's where I need to be seen. Um, these issues impact them more than others. Mm -hmm. They don't have the sense that they can move to another caregiver. They don't feel comfortable asking questions. They, you know, maybe don't think they should be prepared, that it's really in the doctor's hands. So I think these tips can be especially helpful for, for vulnerable and minority populations. And what are your hopes for what can be achieved in the next 10 or 20 years? Well, I think uh, we're certainly moving towards a healthcare system that in a much larger way, um, acknowledges the importance of personal characteristics in general on care, whether it be race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, disability, veteran status. I mean, th this concept of big data, understanding who people are in a deeper way, is one that I think is gonna move the healthcare system to be truly more patient-centered and to better understand who we're caring for and what we could do for them. So I think that's very positive because disparities will fit into there. I think that'll be incorporated into how we're uh, providing care. I do think we're moving into an environment where there's you know, more focus on measurement, monitoring, identifying gaps, and we've done an incredible amount of work nationally on patient safety. My hope is that similarly the issues of disparities and equity could, could follow that model where we monitor safety events, we monitor errors, you know, in a non-judgmental way, but in a spirit of learning. I, I think we're moving towards that, in that direction uh, in the next 10 to 20 years around disparities. And I feel like healthcare transformation will allow us to do a lot of things that we know work and have been particularly helpful uh, to address disparities, such as the implementation of coaches, navigators, community health workers, but haven't had a way to finance previously because of the, of the way our healthcare system mm -hmm. paid for care. As we move towards paying for quality, I believe that we can take all those lessons learned from what we've deployed and they will make financial sense now. You know, so many great programs have died because the foundation now is no longer funding them because the contract is over. With this fundamental shift in the way we pay for healthcare, we believe that won't be the case anymore and we'll really be able to fund things that work and sustain them. Well, I look forward to seeing some of this begin to happen. Yeah, as do I, and I, um, I'm excited to be part of the process and trying to groom people as well who could continue this, this change and uh, action uh, you know, long after the Disparity Solutions Center uh, fades away.
Well, thank you very much for taking the time to share some of what you're doing here and how you're trying to help patients all over. My pleasure. It's been a, a, a real joy, and I thank you for inviting me. Thanks. And now for this month's abstract. When a diamond miner named Tsar arrived at the Ebola treatment unit in Kenema, Sierra Leone in 2014, he saw red fences surrounding the area where people with suspected and confirmed cases of the disease were to be treated. He panicked. The colorful barricades reminded him of the horror he experienced in 1996 as a child soldier in Sierra Leone's Civil War, when rebel fighters used to attach red cloth to their guns during live battles. Personal details like this aren't just colorful anecdotes from the Ebola pandemic. They're important data in the kind of interconnected, multidisciplinary study that's necessary to understand the outbreak. They're also key to building the kind of health systems that will prevent a repeat of the deadly events that unfolded in West Africa from 2013 to 2016. The study was led by Paul Farmer, head of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at HMS, and Eugene Richardson, a physician and research scientist at Partners in Health in Sierra Leone. The researchers used the survivor story to trace the connections between the closing of schools during quarantine and the rise in teen pregnancies in the nation, between the deadly toll of Ebola on caregivers and the rise in death from unattended childbirth and malaria, all in the context of a nation ravaged by civil war and a brutal legacy of colonialism. As the authors point out, understanding the social, cultural, historical, and economic environment where the outbreak occurred is just as important as understanding the biology of the disease and developing effective treatment plans. To build a working health system, all of the pieces need to fit together. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our producer, Rick Rollo. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode, or to let us know what you think, visit hms.harvard.edu slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at HarvardMed, or like us on Facebook. Woohoo! <laughs> Science.